This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. Lots has happened. Uh, and in fairness, that describes every moment in human history and indeed the Earth's history. You know, like there's always stuff going on. Except so. the very first moment, whenever that was. <laughs> Because then it's like, well, hmm. <laughs> there was just an well, infinite void before this. But even the infinite void turning into existence is itself mm. a pretty exciting thing to have happen. To be That's... like, well, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> What's this? <laughs> Who's asking me this question? <laughs> Without an audience, to whom do I address my rhetorical question? <laughs> so good. So, um, that of course brings me to Bugsy Malone's performance in The Gentleman, right? And, so. and can I just can I just rewind? Because yeah. I, I you know, I look at the analytics of Spooko and mm. you know, obviously each week people listen to the new episode, but people go back and listen to old episodes. Now there's many thoughts you could extrapolate from that data, but one of them mm. is people probably haven't listened to Spooko from the beginning and might be new to your obsession with Bugsy Malone, aka Manchester's King of the North, one mm. of I mean, he's not he's probably not one of the best known grime rappers, but Peach, I'd say he's probably your favorite grime MC. I think that's right. And to the extent anyone's feeling left out, um, you know, tough. Like it's an in crowd, go listen to them all. So if you want to be in on the joke. Go back and listen to them. (laughs) But, but, sorry, to be somewhat respectful, uh, Shag and I have have, uh, mulled over a number of possible horror movies, and the first one we came to was called Eyes Up, which is in a post-apocalyptic sort of a world where our hero, we think, is blind the whole film, but it turns out, I've even forgotten, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I think we've disagreed on the ending but we chose as our star the King of the North, Bugsy Malone. Mm. And so uh, we, we've, we've gone on to uh, produce other films such as Kinder and Chardon and Doppel and um, whatever the film snips he's going to be and all this sort of stuff. So that's our heart back to Eyes Up. So I watched The Gentleman not merely um, as a movie watcher but as a film producer, you know, imagining that I was watching... Um, the star of the film that was going to launch Spooko Studios. The world you live in, Peach, <laughs> is so amazing. Like, you can't... You're the only person I know who can't enjoy things in a normal way. Like, you <laughs> you put these constructs around things to to consume... It's, ama- no, it's amazing. Like, people should study you. Look, uh, that's what they're doing on this pod. So, congrats. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to how my brain works. Anyway, continue, continue. So just a quick spoiler for the film itself. Look, um, you'll, the huge spoiler is it's pretty racist, pretty misogynistic <laughs> and pretty derivative, you know, like, but that's not a huge spoiler because it's a Guy Ritchie film. So like, fucking like, what do you want? Um, it, what's also not a huge spoiler is that it's fairly poorly written. Like, so Bugsy's in this group of 
sort of northern thugs and the group's called the, the Toddlers and he's in this gang of like boxers who are meant to be sort of like lovably dumb but also extremely capable and it's this really like they just never square that circle of how you're like lovable idiots but super capable and so there's that like poorly written divergence immediately then we come in and we learn that the toddlers are robbing very prominent cannabis dealers uh, premises. They're going in and they finally steal from the wrong guy. And that's one of the, like one, one of the thrusts of the film. And in any case, he's woefully miscast firstly as a thief who is a boxer. And if you know Bugsy Malone, as I do, he, like he came up as a boxer. So he sort of cuts the right, he cuts the right figure like a powerful dude but he's like 32 years old now and he's meant to be playing like sort of a very late teen, very early 20s sort of goofball. And he, he looks older than 32. I'm surprised he's 32. Like to me, he looks like a 55 year old who looks great for his age kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> like that's sort of the impression I always get of both of I'm like, gosh, he's aged amazingly, that 55 year old. <laughs> But look, you know, Bugsy, his favourite filmmakers are indeed Guy Ritchie and Quentin Tarantino. So he's a problematic bloke for us to have have in our universe. But um, in any case, his character, right, breaks into the cannabis premises to come and steal the cannabis. But they film it and then they turn it into like a fight. And this shows how Guy Ritchie doesn't understand anything in the world. Then they turn it into fight porn so they upload them fighting all the guards at the cannabis premises and then they turn it into a video clip because Bugsy Malone's character is also a grime rapper who raps about the successful drug stealing and he's like boxes of bud boxes of boxes of boxes of bud and he's like rapping to brag about the job he's just done stealing (laughs) cannabis it's this entirely disjointed narrative that just shows how much Guy Ritchie has no understanding about anything apart from very good East London accents that he's all over. And so how does Bugsy fit into Eyes Up? As I say, I had my film, my, my very experienced filmmaker's hat on and it sort of led me to think maybe we don't want to expose ourselves to the risk of casting Bugsy uh, because he strikes me as the sort of dude who's only one tweet away from saying something that might not be super great for our film. And he might not necessarily be down with that uh, patriarchy-smashing, anarcho-syndicalist life that Spooko is all about. So if we have to move on from Bugsy, I was thinking we could take a step back to another problematic mentor we've had, which is 50. And I was just leaning back to some of 50's advice as how you generate a budget. And he's like, look, the way you do it is you borrow a million dollars from Bank A on Monday... Then you go to Bank B and go, Bank B, I've got a million dollars in my bank account. You should loan me a million dollars too. And then Bank B will lend it to you. And that's 50's advice. So borrow a million dollars from Bank A, go over to Bank B, show them Bank He's like, just fucking just show them your bank account. And that's all banks do. Basically, they go, oh, okay, cool. Where's your bank account? And um, so 50's a wise man of the world. So let's say we've got that budget. Um, then we can go and browse around for actors. So two things. I think you're right. That we have to work with people who are down with our narco syndicalists. I don't even know what that means, but I, I think I think I know what it is because I feel like it's the things we talk about. Who are down with that life? Um, yep. I don't necessarily think we should be scared of actors just in case they tweet something bad, purely because I think that will be less of an issue 
this year. That's my guess. Yeah, okay. And also, I think it's 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 the wrong way to start from like a you know, uh, that's the wrong place to to We're start. On defense, though, right? I'm being too conservative. I think so. I think so. But uh, you know, another thing I want to talk about, but I want to talk about it next week because we we do have to get onto the episode. Is uh, I'm going to creative direct here. Uh, big shout out once again to Kelly on Insta who had some mm. thoughts about how to develop Kinder. Now. As I said, I want to create a direct. I want to take Kelly's thoughts and build on them next episode because Kinder for me is the blind spot in our trilogy that comes after Eyes Up. We have four films in the works in Spooko Studios. Very, am- mm. I love that we're so ambitious that we have a film and then we have a trilogy of films ready to go. So, you know, we do need to work on those and I want to get to them next week. So I just want to say a shout out to Kelly and everybody on Insta for giving their suggestions. Uh, we want to get to that next week. Man, they are killing it on Insta. Super grateful, Kelly. Thank you. So today I want to tell a tale of two films. Because each week, some weeks it's easy to pick the film I want to do. Some weeks mm. it's, you know, it's a spark of inspiration. It's a suggestion from someone on Insta or, you know, in our lives. Other weeks, I actually do a little bit of research, uh, you know, and one of the places I start researching is I look at lists. You know, for the past, mm. say, five years or so, the internet ran on listicles. And, you know, film of all the sort of mediums is filled with listicles, like of whatever you want. You want to see the top 10 gangster films set in North London? You'll find it. You want to see, you know, in my case, the top 50 disturbing films? I'll find that too. (laughs) So that's where I found myself. I was like, I wonder if there's some things we've missed because the last couple of films we've done, I mean, even Silent Night, Deadly Night, you know, it's gross, but nothing there to really like chill you to your core. So Mm. I went down the disturbing films path and I came across a film, a film that we're not doing today and probably won't do, that was banned in Australia and I believe is still banned, but is considered a bit of an art horror classic. And it's cited in lists all the time. It's from 1987, I think. Uh, It's a West German film. When did the Berlin Wall come down? Was that... So late 89 or 91? I'm pretty sure 89. Yeah, right. So it's pre-Berlin Wall coming down, German film called Necromantic. West Germany, okay. Yeah, yeah. Necromantic. It's, it's, okay. It's, it's called, like, it is called a West German film in, in, you know, in all the write-ups for it. And there's quite a lot. Because like I said, this is a uh, an art horror classic. People read a lot into this film, even though as far as I can tell, it's <laughs> a pretty gross 70-minute film. Like, I've never seen it. I never will see it. I don't mm. think we'll do it in this podcast, but then never say never. But I was reading through the synopsis and I was pretty grossed out. It's about this guy down on his luck who works for a firm that gets rid of dead bodies, but that's his cover because he likes to take them home to his girlfriend. They're both uh, necrophiles and they like to have like threesomes with corpses and they keep the corpses in their home and have little buckets to connect all their like you know blood and goo and like it it just sounded so gross right like this film and not a lot of films from that era or before that were banned are still banned now they come back into the light of day the censors see them again they're like you know what it was the 80s that doesn't look real this is dumb you know things have moved on most things get unbanned but this film as far as i can tell is still banned and still banned in quite a few places although i'm pretty sure in Europe and like places like Portugal, they show this in like daytime TV because they're, uh, they're yeah. But anyway, anyway, anyway. So I was reading about this film mm. and I was pretty grossed out and I was like, "Fuck!" Like I wonder if we could do this for Spooko. So I then watched the trailer and I just, 
I disassociated and got kind of bored because it was images of, I've never been to Berlin. I especially had never been to Berlin pre the Berlin Wall. (laughs) You know, it was shot on, I think like Super 8, like really bad low grade film stock. There's, There's bad looking blood. There's lots of like gross nudity mixed with like skeletons. There's like skulls and stuff and knives going into things. And I was just a bit like, I had this moment where I was just like, I just don't, I don't care. I don't, this isn't, this isn't doing, and I don't mean as in like, this isn't, you know, doing anything for me in terms of like, this isn't turning me on. I just mean like, mm. this is inspiring nothing in me. And uh, when I said this was a tale of two films, let me tell you about a film I watched a couple of days ago, because for some reason, this film got on my radar. So it's a <laughs> mid noughties film called Philomena. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It stars Steve Coogan and Judy Dench. It was marketed. I have not seen it. It was marketed as like this kooky comedy with uh, Steve Coogan dealing with like batty old Judy Dent. The cover literally calls it a comedy, has both of them sitting next to each other, smiling, sort of kind of like Steve Coogan being a bit like uh, Judy, right? <laughs> now, this film, I, I, I can't stress you how bad that marketing is for this film because it is a true story based on a true historical evil from the 20th century that happened in Ireland because Ireland is basically a theocratic state because the Catholic Church has such an influence on politics over there in which because of that influence unwed mothers or mothers-to-be were so shamed, and this is like between the 30s and the 70s, this isn't like a million years ago, but were so shamed, they were sent to basically these homes for mothers and children run by uh, who I, what I can only describe as evil nuns, and they call them jokingly but kind of realistically in the film Evil Nuns, who basically forced the women to have birth without any sort of pain relief, then took the babies from them, forced them to work, but kept them there in slavery by letting them see the kids like one hour a week. And at least at some of them, eventually basically sold these kids for adoption to wealthy American couples for a thousand pounds a pop. So essentially it was forced slavery. It was a stolen, you know, like I'm using, I'm not using this term lightly, but it was a stolen generation of these women for the crime of having sex out of marriage. And this film was about Judy Dench 50 years after the birth of her son, who was torn from her at birth. And she was only allowed to see for a couple of hours, you know, a, a week until he was adopted. And she never saw him again, just trying to track him down and trying to get answers from these nuns. And it's a true story, right? Now, this film, for me, as someone who has now, like, had a kid, is, like, true horror. There were scenes, and, you know, Adele and I watched it together, and there were scenes where we could barely watch it. There were scenes where it was so hard for my brain to process that people would do this. That, that was so much more terrifying than, uh, you know, a West German <laughs> corpse, corpse fucker. <laughs> do you know what corpse, I mean? Corpse. So, so yeah. I guess the point to me, that what, what this raised to me was that, and you brought this up before, and I think it's such a good point, horror really succeeds when it taps into a true fear, like a true <laughs> fear that is close to your heart. Now, the necromantic again like we we won't do it but there's more to it and it's about like social mores and sexual frustration and all this stuff but at the end of the day it was hard to relate to but you know good horror is something that everybody can feel and thus when you watch you start that you start to feel that fear creep into your psyche as well this is the power of being scared of the dark like it is because it's an imminent possibility 
like someone like the stolen generation is so fucking disgustingly terrifying because it is a real thing like it, it's not that it could happen it's it's it, like it it happened mm. and and to me that's that's that that's the fear of the dark it's like it could be anything in that dark and that's that's the fucking scary thing well today we're talking about another fear that is going to happen as you've said quite rightfully it is the fear of death itself that comes for all today i can't believe it's taken us to episode 71 to finally do this today we are doing final destination i got this feeling it's weird feeling Cabin starts to shake, right? And, and the, the left side blows up, and then the whole plane just explodes. All 287 passengers are feared dead. Because of you, I'm still alive. In death, there are no accidents. Did you see Todd die? What if it was our time? What if we were not meant to get off that plane? What if there is a design that it's not finished? Walking off the plane, you're cheating death. You have to figure out when it's coming back at you. Was that a young Sean William Scott playing a proto Stifler, a young Jake Gyllenhaal playing a proto Donnie Darko, and this is like the most late 90s into early noughties film ever? I thought we were going to do whatever the Steve Coogan, Judy Dench thing was. And I was super <laughs> like, okay, like, <laughs> I'm about to get mega depressed. Oh, is Final Destination, like, the acme of those, like, 90s slashery films where, like, the slasher is death? Oh, I'm amped. Yes. And I want to talk about exactly what you said. But before I do, mm. one, I mentioned last week about how obsessed I am with the Lolita podcast at the moment. And it's reminded me of when I was like a late teen. I was like 18 or 19. Mm. And I also like decided to read a problematic book probably before I could really properly digest it in a way that was, you know, good for me. Uh, Mm. I read American Psycho. (laughs) But I read American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. I think purely because I went to Borders. Remember Borders? I went to Borders to buy it. Oh, the bookshop. Yeah. Yeah, the book slash coffee slash CD shop. And I went to buy it. And I think the only reason I wanted to buy it was because it was the only book I'd ever seen that was wrapped in plastic and had an R18 thing on it. And it was pretty scary to buy it, but I wanted to buy it. Now, there's a couple of things I remember from it that have imprinted on me in a way that, you know, Mm. they would on any person who's probably too young to consume a piece of media like that. And to be honest, I don't think it's a book really for anybody. Like, I don't recommend anyone read it. But the first line of the book is, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. But it's a sign written somewhere that someone's reading. So it's someone's in a monologue reading that sign. But then there's a moment, maybe halfway through the book, once all the, you know, the killing and torture and, you know, disgustingness starts, in which... Patrick Bateman, the main character who may or may not be an American psycho, talks about this victim that he has that he does horrible things to. And he describes this this thought, which has stuck with me forever, where he was like, I just wanted her to know that she was never going to get out of this. I wanted her to know that whatever happened, she was going to die and she was going to die horribly. And that is the feeling that permeates the Final Destination series. Like, you already know what they're about. Everybody knows what they're about. It's about the fact that, 
you can you can escape death for a while, but eventually it's going to come to you. And in these films, if you escape death for too long, it comes to you in the most awful, horrific, but also very creative ways. Oh, it's such a good premise. Like, it is such a good premise because exactly as you said before, it cuts to the quick of... Like, we don't need a metaphor, like, you don't need a funny hat or a flashy knife. It's like, this is literally, and also well-named, like, it's like, this is, like, this is where we're heading. Like, I'm, I'm very psyched. Well, it is, it's named originally because it was based off a story about a flight. And I want to talk about the guy who wrote it, because I, I've thought about this quite a bit. Like, mm. if you wanted to become successful in a creative field, the goal mm. would be, to become successful enough that you're satisfied with what you make, but not yes. successful enough that you're famous. Yes. And that's where horror directors sit. Because outside of the horror world, or, or horror writers, I, I doubt you've heard the name Jeffrey Reddick before. But he's the guy that created the Final Destination series. And after number two, was able to quit his day job and basically live off writing these films and some other films. But... I think day to day he could walk around, he could go to Borders and have a coffee and browse the books and no, like outside of like hardcore horror fans, which we know exist, no one's mm. going to trouble him. But I actually think this is a pretty sweet story. So Jeffrey Reddick, when he was 14, wrote a 10 page spec script that was like a prequel to uh, Nightmare on Elm Street that he sent to New Line Cinema, the company that created them. And he got no reply because apparently they didn't accept submissions. But then he sent mm. it to one of the co like heads or co I don't know how company you know these film studios work but mm. one of the top bosses of the studio who kept in contact with him and became a bit of a pen pal not in a creepy way because <laughs> in film often <laughs> this becomes yeah. a creepy thing but it was just he he basically ended up getting a sort of mentor yeah he becomes, mm. he's a mentor and he ends up getting a job at New Line Cinema mm. so anyway during uh, I guess I guess the sort of late nineties he writes a script for what he thinks, what would eventually become Final Destination that he writes as like an X-Files episode. He's like, this is going to make a really good X-Files episode. And this is the inspiration for it. He says, I was actually flying home to Kentucky and I read a story about a woman who was on vacation and her mom called her and said, don't take the flight tomorrow. I have a really bad feeling about it. She switched flights and the plane that she would have been on crashed, said Reddick. I thought, that's creepy. What if she was supposed to die on that flight? So it all comes, like Final Destination, it's all, it, like it originates from this idea of those hunches we get. What if they're real? And what if they could save us from something, but in fact, they could only save us from something for a certain amount of time because death gets us all in the end. That is another richly deserved direct criticism of paranormal activity. You know, of the like, well, heard something weird in my house and thought, how crazy is that? You know, like... It, it's a more full conception <laughs> of something that, like, it's okay to have initial thoughts, Shag, as you've taught me before, mm. but you have to push past that initial idea. Precisely as my homie Johnny Reddick, who oh, I could have just been standing in line, you know, to buy a coffee right behind him yesterday. Isn't it an amazing world? You have and probably walked past Jeffrey Reddick on the street. 
Like we we all he probably have. Listens. He probably <laughs> listens. To this book, yeah. He's probably like, yeah, guys. Um, here's another thing, though, because he wrote it, but it was directed by a guy called James Wong. And James Wong said about this because when because he was working in New Line Cinema at the time, and he wrote it like as a side hustle, as a spec script. Uh, his friends at the company were like, no, this is too good for a script for X-Files. You should try to turn this into a film. And mm. when he started developing it with the director, James Wong, he has this quote that I really like where he says, one thing we were all in agreement on from the start is that we didn't want to do a slasher movie. I became very excited when we decided to make the world at large in the service of death, our antagonist. Everyday objects and occurrences then take on ominous proportions and it becomes less about whether or not our characters are going to die and more about how will they die and how they can delay their deaths. The entertainment value is in the ride, not in the outcome. And by placing the premise of the film on the inevitability of death, we play a certain philosophical note. With that in mind, though, I don't think they could have predicted the popularity of YouTube or the popularity of kill count videos. But because the only fun of these films, as you know, it stretches out to a five film narrative arc, is seeing how the characters die in what situations. Watching a kill count or carnage count version of these films is just as satisfying as watching the whole thing. I feel like it's also a lesson in how to write a horror film, right? We can all come in and be, wouldn't Snipsy be a bit scary, right? Like that's, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I am proof that we can all literally do that. There is something to be said for sitting down and nutting out, like, all right, like, how is it actually going to be executed? And, and you know, it leads back to what an intellectual property lawyer would say or, Shag, what you might say as a creative of, like, Ideas, fine. Have as many ideas as you want. Fucking congratulations. <laughs> execution. Execution, 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 execution. And that's why like I'm I'm so scared of like the potential that in eighteen months time we might go away for a writing camp for four days and I'll be like mm. <laughs> I've said the thing, you know. Like, oh, it's like I've told I'll you my idea for the plot. That's it. Yeah. Done. Let's wrap it. Let me know if you need it. You know, I'll show <laughs> a coffee run. There's a bakery down the street. The croissant looked all right. Um, and so I just think it's such a shiny example of the value of execution, the value of thinking something through rather than being like, how weird would it be if you missed a plane you were meant to die on and then you died? I'm excited. You know, I mentioned Kill Counts before. I just watched the Kill Count for this film again. Like, I saw this however many years ago, but I wanted to remember the deaths because they're the most important parts. And the Wikipedia synopsis doesn't do an amazing job of describing them. So I'll do my best to fill you in on how this works. But anyway, this is Final Destination from the year 2000. And it's set in the year 2000, which I always find quite interesting because usually they're filmed before that. And anyway, look, it doesn't matter. So could, could, could you imagine... Filming a film in, you know, 2019, having it set in the year 2020. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. How, and it's set in a bar or something. I'm like, hey, guys, yeah. it's October 2020. Let's all cuddle and go to our favorite, <laughs> you know, our favorite dive bar where everyone stands really close to each other. Or it was set at like a crowded <laughs> airport bar. Like, yeah. you know, like, what the fuck would you do? My God. Or the, fi- the final act of the film is going to a music festival or something. You're like, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're all in it together. <laughs> and you'd already shot that part. You're like, okay, <laughs> we got that in the can. We now just have to do all the other things. <laughs> It'll be easy. The only two important elements are <laughs> it has to be in late 2020 and it has to have people standing really close together. <laughs> okay. All right. 
On May 13, the year 2000, high school student Alex Browning boards Volet Airlines Flight 180, a Boeing 747 with his classmates for their senior trip to Paris, Charles de Gaulle Airport. I don't know why they're telling us, like, if you fly to Paris, you're probably, especially from America, you're probably going to fly into Charles de Gaulle. Like, anyway, so... No, it'll be relevant later. It'll be relevant. I'm certain. But they said from New York, John F. Kennedy Airport as well. Before takeoff... Alex has a premonition that the plane will explode in mid-air, killing everybody on board. When the events from his vision began to occur in reality, he panics until a fight breaks out between him and student Carter Horton. So he has a vision that leads up to this moment, essentially is the idea. As a result of this fight, both of them are removed from the plane, including Alex's best friend Todd Wagner, Carter's girlfriend Terry Cheney, teacher Valerie Luton, and students Billy Hitchcock and Clear Rivers. Clear Rivers is a great name. Great name. None of the other passengers except Clear believe Alex about his vision until the plane explodes on takeoff. And we see that both from the airport watching it you know through the window and seeing you know the airport windows blow in from the force of the explosion after takeoff mm. we also go into the plane we see yeah, people cool. being sucked out we see people on fire we see big blood splatters on the wall like this is a film that you know even from the very first entry i i hesitate to use this expression but part of the fun was seeing the insane ways people died going oh basically yeah You know, it's that idea of a teen date movie, I guess, where you want to see something shocking enough that teenagers feel like they're rebelling, but not, you know, too disturbing that, you know, they go home changed or evil. I feel like insurers would hate this film. Like, you know, like death is just like going around making toothpaste kill people and stuff like that. And like, oh, shit. And like bathtubs kill people. Okay, all right. It's like consumer rights advocates. (laughs) So two FBI agents, Wine and Shrek, who both displayed suspicions towards Alex, interrogate the survivors afterwards. 39 days later, after attending a memorial service for the victims, an unusual chain reaction causes Todd to accidentally hang himself in his shower that night. So when it says an unusual chain reaction, first of all, some sort of fluid is knocked over and goes onto the bathroom floor. And we see this fluid, we see it from essentially the fluid's perspective, slowly chase Todd's feet around the bathroom. He then slips on it, uh, because he slipped on it, something that came loose from the shower is, I think, the, the sort of thing that holds the shower curtain. Because yeah. of this slip, he somehow is positioned in a way to fall on that shower curtain. I think he slips in a way that he wraps his... It, it wraps around his head a few times and then he, you know, is basically pushed against the wall, hung from this shower curtain, and we do a close-up of the eyes as they fill with blood, which I guess is a <sighs> thing that happens when you're hung, and then he dies in the bathroom. Yeah, okay. That does sound thrilling and a bit scary. Like one of those, um, what are they called? Um, Rube Goldberg machines. Rube Goldberg It's machines. Like all the deaths Sick. are basically Rube Goldberg machines. Sick. So when his death was ruled as a suicide, Alex sneaks into the funeral home along with Clear to examine Todd's corpse. When the mortician, William Bloodworth, reveals that... It's a... Great name for a mortician. <laughs> reveals that the survivors who escaped from the appending circumstance have disrupted death's plan 
and is now claiming the lives of those who were meant to die from the accident. That to me is both like a little bit boring, but also incredibly chilling in the way that it's like, it's a little bit boring because you can't outrun it, but then it's very chilling because you can't outrun it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The stakes are extremely high, but also the inevitability means there's no there's no chance. There's no, like, the probability yeah. is 100%. Like, it's happening. The stakes are both high and not there at all. But, yeah, like, it's also funny that, like, the certainty of death is all we've got. It's like, we are aware that we are definitely going to die. And so the the tragedy such as it is, is the time frame, is the, like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll, you know, it almost becomes a metaphor of like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll do a bit more exercise. Yeah, okay, I'll eat a bit more healthy. You know, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll try to extend this amount of time. And it sort of serves as a microcosm. I, I think this is a surprisingly sophisticated, like I imagine it's told in a simple way, and I don't mean simple as a, as a, um, as an insult. Like I think this is really sophisticated. This is really cool. It's absolutely pitched as a teen film, though. And you're right. It is told yeah. in a simple way. But the underlying themes, and, you know, as James, yeah. the uh, the director, noted... This is already one of my faves. Uh, yeah, as James, the director, noted, uh, you know, in that mm. quote before, like, there's a philosophical edge to this film. Yeah. So Alex and Clear discuss their next move when the rest of the survivors arrive outside the cafe. Now... Terry is standing on the road while they're all chatting. And this this shot, I don't know if it's been done before this or if this was the shot that has gone on to influence a million shots. But she's standing on the road and just out of nowhere, this bus just flies into her and we basically just see her body, her body explode and we cut to her friends who just get splattered with her blood. Oh, and the like surprise car accident shot yeah. of like, hey, Shag, what's going on? Boom. Yeah, yeah, and 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 no, there's no the, the the blood and the explosion to make it very clear that this is not an accident. This person, well, I mean, it is an accident, but this person is dead. This yeah. is a fatality. So that happens. After mm. watching a news report on the cause of the explosion, Alex concludes the death is reclaiming the survivors according to the sequence of their intended demises on the plane. Nonetheless. He is too late to save Mrs. Luton, whose house explodes after she is impaled by a falling kitchen knife. Now that again, this doesn't this doesn't properly talk about the sequence of the Rube Goldberg death machine that leads yes. to her death. So she makes herself a cup of coffee. Unbeknownst to her, a very slight crack appears in the cup and it starts dripping. She puts the cup of coffee on top of her old school computer that has like a big box for a monitor, not a flat monitor, which drips through to the mechanics, which makes it start sizzling. She notices it starts sizzling. It explodes. The glass of the screen shatters outwards and one of the shards goes straight into her neck. So she then crawls into the kitchen as this fire starts of the fire from the explosion, you know, snakes its way into the kitchen as well, makes its way to something, I guess, you know, fuel. So something alcoholic, I assume in the kitchen, Mm. causing another explosion, knocking her back onto the ground. She's on the ground, a fire around her, this, this sharp shard in her neck. She reaches up to a tea towel, you know, for some sort of help. The tea Mm. towel is hiding the knife block. As she pulls down the tea towel, she pulls down a knife as well, which shoves its way into her like chest. As he comes into, as Alex comes into the house to save her, a further explosion happens in the house, affecting one of the chairs in the kitchen, which falls down, further knocking the knife further into Mrs. Luton's <sighs> chest, killing her finally. 
sick and horrific, but I deeply enjoyed that shape. Thank you. So the remaining survivors reunite, and Alex explains the situation as they drive through town. Carter, who would be next, according to Alex's plan, is still enraged over Terry's death and stops his car on a train crossing. The others flee the car, but Carter plans to die on his own terms, finally changing his mind at the last minute when his seatbelt jams. Alex saves him just before the car is smashed by an oncoming train, but it flings shrapnel from the wreckage into the air, decapitating Billy. Now, this is... So this is Sean William Scott getting decapitated, and there's a genre of decapitations that happen in horror films. Now, in the old school, like 60s and 70s day, the decapitation is clean at the neck. You know, we might see like the two main, I think they're ventricles, is that what they're called? Sort of squirting out blood. The carotid? Yeah, whatever those big tubes are. That, well, what, yeah. I guess, yeah, I look, I don't know. And Adele's going to kill me. They're called blood like, tubes. I think that's the technical. Adele's going to be like, Shh, you idiot, Shag. This is what they call. But anyway, so the blood is spurting out from tubes. It's quite a clean cut. You know, you see this in like comedy films really now. Um, almost guillotine, head into the basket kind of vibe. Yep. But to make decapitations more horrific, and this film does, is they do the decapitation around about maybe just above the jaw. And that's what happens here. So sort of half the head is still intact, but the rest of the head is flying off. So the gore then is way grosser and way harder to deal with. Anyway, so that's what happens to Sean William Scott. Alex surmises that because he intervened in Carter's death, death skipped to the next person in the original sequence. The next day, while hiding out in a fortified cabin, Alex recalls changing seats in his premonition. He did not do so in reality and realises that Clear is actually next. He rushes to her house to save her while being pursued by Wine and Shrek, who were the the detectives on the case, right? Because in the end, it's like, because there's actually no monster or no slasher or anything, it Mm. does just feel like a bunch of suspicious deaths from these people who, you know, managed to miraculously escape this plane crash. Alex finds Clear, who is trapped inside her car, surrounded by loose electrical cables that ignite a gasoline leak around her. She grabs the cable, allowing her to escape from the car just before it explodes. Six months later, and this is quite cool, because it's like six months later and you're like, oh, maybe maybe they can actually outrun death. Alex, Clear and Carter travel to Paris to celebrate their survival. While discussing their ordeal, Alex reveals that death never skipped him after he saved Clear. Fearing that their struggle is unfinished, Alex retreats when a bus hurls parking signage towards a neon sign which descends towards him. Carter pushes Alex out of the way at the last second, but the sign swings back down towards the former and kills him, leaving Death's plan to resume action. And that's the end of the film. The end of the film is like, Death still has to kill some of these people who are left. Yeah. Is it a thrilling watch? Like, is it sort of a nice lean 85, 88 minutes that you're like, yeah, man, like, let's go. I can imagine it being reasonably satisfying and perhaps not that spooky. Like, Shag, I've seen people die before and I'm scared-ish of death in, like, a general way. And I'm scared-ish of having my head cut off halfway. So, so... Absolutely. So they describe that, you know, as, as I said before, they describe they want this film to be about the ride and, you know, not to be about mm-hmm. the who, what, why, but just to enjoy the experience. And one of the things that, again, I read, I read you know, reading up on this film is mm-hmm. the set direction played a big part in this film. And you would see this when watching it is that they wanted to make sure that all the scenes of death, so, you know, the kitchen, the bathroom, the train crossing, 
they dress these sets in a way not to be like something's clearly wrong, but just off. And then shot them in a way to be like, something is amiss here, but mm. I'm not sure what. So there was this constant feeling when you were watching the film that anything could kill people. But then you would get to these scenes where you'd be like, I, I something feels wrong. I don't know what it is, but something feels wrong. And for that that is one of the reasons why these films are worth watching because like you said before like a level of care and a level of uh i guess thought went into creating something that i i think is very smart even though they are teen films and there's five of them and you know the films basically take on a saw like franchise quality where it's just about seeing how creative the deaths get and they do get very creative in two three four and five but at the end of the day, they're quite smart, simple, clever films. I always get, I don't always get laughed at. I get metaphorically laughed at for saying stuff is simple, but not simplistic and complex, but not complicated. And to me, this seems like something that is complex, but not complicated and simple, but not simplistic. Like it's, it's a fairly sharp idea and it strikes me as a fairly sharp execution Shaq, I think this is the one that we show to new interns at Spooko Studios to be like, go watch this film. Go probably watch, what, Us? I guess we probably, like, in fact, that'll be interesting. Maybe you have to challenge me one day to, like, do a horror movie syllabus of, like, what are, like what is in Peach's horror movie canon <laughs> so that I have to decide, <laughs> having not seen any of them. But I think this goes in the canon. This strikes me as the blockbuster yeah. execution. This, that is such a cool thought. And it's something I definitely want. I'd be keen to hear what other people's are, but I definitely will have a think about this. And I think in a later episode, I'm definitely going to be asking you what would be in your horror movie syllabus, especially as someone who hasn't seen it. <laughs> I wonder what Guy Ritchie's is. <laughs> you what, mate? <laughs> in it! <laughs> Uh, this was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up? <laughs>